This is the Love Swimming Podcast, powered by Love Admin's easy-to-use software that reduces your organization's admin and increases its income. Find out more at www.loveadmin.com. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the Love Swim Podcast. It's me, Clive Marquis, again, and this week I have Amy Felstead with me. She is she well, she studied human um, and applied physiology um, as a master's, and she is working for Cardinal Performance Swimming. So, hello, Emily, can I uh, say hello? Hi, Clive. Um, thank you for inviting me to this podcast today. Uh, it's really exciting to be on. Um, so, yeah, let's let's get cracking. Yeah, yeah, no, it'll be really interesting to chat about this because uh, physiology is something like, you know, it's a bit different, it's a bit something like out there, it's something that we're not all uh, look at in our swimming, but we definitely should because it's the basis of basically everything we do. So uh, something that we should definitely be looking at. So we'll start off with, as we always do, the basics. So who are you? Tell us a little about your swimming history because you have had some swimming history. I've swam with you before. Um, and yeah, and just tell us about, yeah, you tell us about swimming. So... I started swimming since I was around what, seven, eight competitively, just got thrown in as a kid um, <laughs> and then loved it ever since. Got sort of, I just picked it up really easily. It was one of those things that I just got into. So um, I got, I was relatively good when I was younger, around 13, um, hitting regionals. Um, unfortunately, when, uh, when the uh, nationals became rankings and not times, I didn't quite make them which was unfortunate. So uh, <laughs> that was disappointing there and um, became quite injured, bad shoulders, uh, bad ribs. And um, took a t- took some time off, went to university and joined the team there and just, just swam for the uni, swam at Bucks, did quite well there. And then um, obviously COVID hit, training wasn't wasn't really there. So I couldn't train there, went into the sea a couple of times, which was freezing but you know good good for the uh good for your health getting into some cold water and then um yeah haven't got into it much recently i'm swimming on my own once once or twice a week but um i would love to join back into a club again just uh work time doesn't doesn't allow that right now but hopefully in the future i'll join back up which would be which would be nice so it's all about adulting at the moment, though, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of adulting. <laughs> Trying to balance everything at the same time is uh, not the easiest of things to do. But one one day it will ease off, hopefully. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll flourish. Well, yeah, so as you said, you're going to talk to us a lot today about physiology and bits like that. So, yeah, again, another real basic question. What is physiology and what do physiologists do is so from my personal experience, when I mention to anyone isn't in the sporting world, um, physiology, they're like, ah, oh, physiotherapy, you're going to be massaging people, you're going to be doing this. And you're like, no, no, it's not. Um, and then you just got to try and explain as much as you can what physiology actually is to people that haven't even come into that sort of area of expertise. So um, physiology within a sporting context is actually the understanding of the physiological demands of a sporting performance. So um, understanding these physiological demands in, informs us of what characteristics an athlete should have to be successful competing at the highest level. 
So sports physiologists work to optimize these physiological demands to be able to win in that sport or event or anything that they're doing. Um, and they do this by accurately measuring these characteristics during specific tests. And then this allows the physiologist to create athlete profiles, which is then used to advise coaches and athletes about the training and competition with ob objectivity and individuality. So it basically allows the training to be specific for that individual and not just the whole team. Um, okay. So just for example, going into swimming there, you'd, you might have two different athletes, a sprinter and uh, an endurance swimmer, but they actually swim in the same squad. So in the same team and they're doing the same sets. So being able to test them individually and look at their performance outcomes and you can actually get specific training for them. Um, I'll go on to a little bit later about um, some specific tests possibly that can show you how different athletes can be yeah. and how different training can work for individual people. Um, so on top of this, the athletes also have to compete and train in many different environments. So cold environments, hot environments, or even altitude. So physiologists have to understand how the body responds and adapts to performing in these environments. And then this allows them to either inform the best preparation to compete in these extreme environments or use the athlete's adaptations from these environments to these, to these extreme environments to be able to enhance the training stimulus. So they have this thing called um, live high, live high, train low or live low, train high. So it's there are, different acronyms and things like that so that basically means that an athlete can train in altitude so then their body adapts to the lack of oxygen up there but so then when they compete down in sea level their body's used to not needing that much oxygen yeah so it's it makes it easier because their body is trained is used to not needing that much oxygen so when they're competing they're not needing as much as potentially other people that have not trained in altitude as sort of one example. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how a, a physiologist would go about doing that as well. But there's many, many things that they, they do in heat, um, especially with like the Olympics that was, that was in heat. Um, just heat chambers, those tents that they use, um, looking at how much sweat that they're producing and how much dehydration and weight loss they're getting from exercise in the heat and just different things like that. So it's all very technical, but very exciting and, and good. Well, really good to see that athletes are using it and do well from it. So yeah, I've got a quick question. Actually, just a little off topic. So you talked there about altitude training and stuff like that. Um, how, um, how important is altitude training or being able to shoot? I agree with you. If you're used to training without oxygen and then you're given a ton of oxygen, of course, you're going to feel better and perform better. Um, so is it one of these things where we should all really be looking to train at altitude if we can? Or is there implementations that we can use at sea level to replicate lack of oxygen and this that? Um. So it's sort of, there's a lot of studies around it to see whether it's like necessary, like what do we actually need it all the time? And to be honest, I don't think it is. I think it just all depends on the type of sport, type of event, um, where, where you're training, where the competition is. So 
some of the some of the competitions in America are high altitude, so you you train there. Um, I wouldn't potentially wouldn't necessarily say that it's um, a must, um, yeah. but it all depends on what the individual physiologist for that team decides and where the athlete is. So they might the, the athlete might not need it. They're already quite good at utilizing their oxygen already. So. Yeah, it's all, it's all individualised and um, what the individual physiologist thinks and what the team thinks and the coach especially because getting out there to train at altitude is not the easiest thing to do. So um, I'm just going to go and train at a mountain, on a mountain. <laughs> um, but also training at altitude is very different as well because it's not just the altitude and the lack of oxygen, it's it's cold it's very yeah. cold so that makes a big difference to your physiology as well um and then you've got things like hyperbaric and norma baric so it, there's just different aspects of altitude that you need to consider as well so it's not just the lack of oxygen that can help there are other things that may be actually worse off for you okay so it's not just slapping your uh, swimmers up on the big, big mountain and being hey great we've just made some gains yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> It's got to be well thought out and planned whether you do altitude training or not. So okay, so I was getting all excited there. I was like, "Oh, am I going to, you know, <laughs> up on a mountain?" But no, okay, so maybe not. <laughs> but yeah, no. So I think that's a really interesting point about talking about how we, um, how or what physiology is and how we do that. But then we can move on to that and say um, the demands that physiologists assess and stuff like that. So um, when we do these exercise tests, it's like you are looking for a certain now this is where my research may be proving me wrong or not but influences am I right in saying that influences on um sort of like our training or our performance and stuff like that so tell us a bit more about that so um the physiological demands that you assess really depends on what type of sport and activity that the the athlete is doing so for an example an endurance athlete will undergo endurance tests a maximal test that will produce gas exchange information Um, And then this information will then show how much oxygen and carbon dioxide they are producing and using during the test. So we can then work out the athlete's VO2 max, critical power, exercise economy, for example. There are many other um, demands that they they look at. And then these can be used to describe and optimize training programs, which are which obviously then are used to improve these demands and determinants and therefore improve performance. So um, another one is lactate testing. Um, This is another important factor for endurance testing. So it allows us to determine the lactate threshold and other corresponding markers like the uh, maximal lactate steady state, um, uh, lactate turn point and things like that. And then these can be used to create individual training zones, which I'll go on to a little bit later, which what the training zones are for lactate threshold. just a small little snippet of what they are and how they can be used. So, and then going on to more anaerobic and power athletes, maximal force and maximal power are examples of important determinants for physiological testing. So they're not really necessary for endurance athletes, but for obviously power athletes, they are. So, um, and then going further into this, you've got muscle fiber samples and muscle fiber types. So they're really useful in sports science because you're able to determine which type of muscle fiber different athletes have and how to train the athlete in a certain way to be able to optimize these muscle fibers and improve performance. So 
um, of an endurance athlete will have more of one type of fiber than say a power athlete. Yeah. So they'll, they'll have um, type type one fibers are for endurance athletes. So they're more slow twitch fibers. And then for power athletes, more endurance, uh, sorry, speed, more speed athletes will be an anaerobic athletes will be type two, a fibers and then type two X fibers, which is also known as type two B. It's a bit confusing. They've changed the name. Um, they're for like power athletes. So their fibers are quick um, and they react really, really quickly. So it, you can do like um, muscle biopsies to test what the fiber types are of each athlete and things like that. Or um, oh, I can't remember the, the name of it, but it's sort of like an MRI sort of scan that looks at what fibers someone has or during a specific test or something like um, mm. uh, leg extension exercise. You can see what muscle they're using more, what fiber types. So. so if we, so just to put this more at home for um, our listeners and stuff like that, so we're talking about muscle fibers here. It's quite a standard like thing. But so we're saying like 400 freestylers and 400 freestylers plus, they're more looking at that type one sort of like slower twitch, you know, yep. that. then if we're looking at the 200, 200 free kind of two to one, we're looking at type one ish. Uh, yep. Type one, no, a, type, yeah. Type, type two, two, type two, two a, a, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's my type two A's. But then if we go down to the 50s free, we're probably still looking more at type two, bees kind of more strength power yeah. kind of like doesn't need to endure it as much it's like really probably ADP got systems. yeah it's probably got a bit of both type 2 type 2a and type 2 um b or x however you want to whichever we're going to call it um it type 2x is very much for like uh power lifters like the quick yeah. short intensity but um I'd definitely say that sprinters will definitely have a lot of type two X as well. So um, you can obviously have multiple, you can have all three. It's just the, the percentage of how much you've got yeah. determines which sort of muscles are best or which, what you've got more of because of your activity. So, yeah. I, but yeah, I think cause um, I, in my reading, this is complete novice here, but um, we can, we can switch around too so you're not you're not born with like one set of muscle fibers you can you can start and move around between the muscle fibers and change them up as we go through our life can't we yeah definitely so that's what um training is for so um if you're if you're a sprint athlete like yourself um and myself sprint sprint swimmers um and you turn you, you stop doing sprints for whatever reason and you start enjoying distance more which is definitely not what i would <laughs> what i'd be doing um you your muscle fibers will start to change and you'll recruit more type one fibers um and you'll lose more of the type two a or, or b um so yeah it's all about training and you can switch that round and be an endurance swimmer and then go oh you know what i want to start doing 100 free or 100 fly or whatever and then you'll start recruiting more of the faster twitch fibers so it's, de- it's definitely easily doable with with the right training yeah it's fluid yeah yeah okay no i think that's that's a really interesting point that and um because i do know some people are like, oh, I'm born distance from oh, i'm born this and all that but we can move everything around can't we yeah you can definitely move everything around but there are 
there are genetic um there are genetics that are involved so some people might be better off endurance or sprint or whatever so you can change some of your physiology but a lot of it is still genetic so okay yeah um, it's definitely worth a read on that if you uh yeah if you want to have a read on that that sounds more reading i need to be doing (laughs) yeah i have a i have a book that i'm currently reading which talks about it all so um it has a big chapter on genetics so i'll i'll recommend that at the end if you're interested it's a really good book yeah definitely no we'll, we'll definitely put some plugs in yeah but yeah no so um the other one we want to talk about um is the um important so physiological detriment so i'm now yet again this is where i'm either going to show myself up or everyone's going to be impressed i think we're talking about vo2 max lactate thresholds kind of stuff yeah yeah definitely boom <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm not that I've already mentioned them, Clive, before yeah. today. So, no need to know that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, each individual um, determinant of performance is is important in their own way because they all show us very different information regarding performance. So, it's not something that I can say which one the most important is. Um, but I'm more than happy to go through some of them to get an idea of what they are and what they do, yeah, yeah, if you'd like. Yeah. So I'll start off with the most uh, known one of VO2 max. Um, So this is the maximum amount of oxygen you can take in and use during whole body exercise. So this test is trying to challenge the aerobic system whilst collecting expired air. And then from this, you'll be able to establish the highest rate of oxygen uptake during the exercise bout. This is generally, generally, I can't even say the word. (laughs) Generally regarded the good predictor of endurance performance and the gold standard for measuring cardiorespiratory fitness. So what this test is trying to do is seeing whether the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system can keep up the pace with the demand of the muscular system. So, of course, as you increase your muscular demand by increasing intensity, you then increase the requirement for oxygen and the transport of that oxygen to the muscles. So during incremental exercise, um, you'll reach a point at which you'll not be able to consume any more additional oxygen, even though you are increasing the muscular demand by increasing the intensity. And this leads to um, the plateau phenomenon. Um, and this is your VO2 max. There are other other um, points that you can call VO2 max, like different um, like uh, different ways that you can determine it as well, other than the plateau. Um so that was just one example. There's things to do with your your heart rate and your RPE and things like that, your um, respiratory exchange ratio. So um, on top of that, VO2 mats can be trained and developed to enable an athlete to improve the amount of oxygen they can take in and therefore use during the exercise. So this makes it the size of the engine. However, the size can only go so big. You, you can't you can't just keep expanding the size of something um so many other factors are involved during endurance performance and therefore vo2 max on its own does not predict endurance performance with a great deal of validity so going into um another one so lactate threshold this is the point at which your blood lactate first starts to rise during an incremental exercise so this is where your blood lactate is produced quicker than it can be removed. So this is important because if you get it right, it demarcates the moderate and hence heavy intensity domains. So 
below the lactate threshold, the steady state can be achieved. And this is crucial for interpreting physiological responses in relation to other determinants like oxygen uptake kinetics. So they all link together in some way. Um, And then the lactate threshold and the corresponding markers I mentioned earlier, maximal lactate steady state, lactate turn point, et cetera. um, They allow us to prescribe training zones. So an athlete can train within their individual training intensities. So um, for example, there, there are different, training zones that can be prescribed but this is the the main one that people use so zone one is below the lactate threshold zone two is between the lactate threshold and critical power or maximal lactate steady state and then zone three is above critical power so what that is is that when you do your lactate lactate testing you'll get the three points you'll get the lactate threshold and then you'll get critical power or maximal lactate steady state you'll have the graph which is um like inverted u sort of graph um, but starts off flat. Um, and then basically it goes before the lactate threshold, you're in zone one. So you've got, it's basically easy, easy exercise. And then in between the, t- the first and second point is your moderate intensity exercise. And above that is then your maximal exercise. Okay. Yeah. So you can, once you, it's a lot of it's based on heart rate as well so if you look at your lactate to your heart rate you'll look at the your heart rate at lactate threshold so for example you can have a heart rate of lactate at lactate threshold of um let's say 100 115 beats per minute Hmm. so when you're training and you want to do light training you want to have your heart rate below that Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll have another another one of one fifteen to one one thirty is between the other two, and then above one thirty is your heavy intensity. So that's how you'd set the training zone. So when your coach turns around to you and goes, "Right, I want these to be these to be in your heavy t- intensity domain," you want you know what your heart rate needs to be above. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Rather, that. rather than a coach turning around and being okay i need your heart rate to be at 70 percent of your max because for someone like you 70 percent of your max might not be heavy for you yeah whereas it could be heavy for someone else so actually it's not individualized your training yeah it's, it's that makes it quite a broad spoke and then you're training at different zones then at that point then. yeah 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 potentially one person might have completely different heart rate zones to you or lactate zones to you so it's making the the training very individualized um so then you can also look at the the shift to the the graph and a right shift in the graph um is a key marker of training adaptation so if you look at, if you have your lactate graph at the start of the season and then you've done lactate training and you look at it at the end of the season if you if the graph has shifted to the right that means you've improved your lactate training okay that's good yeah okay i can see that then we yeah and then we can have a, some sort of correlative kind of view between how we've improved and stuff like that yeah yeah so um the lactate threshold actually correlates to endurance performance in many ways that you mm. can you can see that and you can plot different parts um so going on to another one of exercise um, efficiency or economy and this is the the ability of the athlete's muscles to utilize the oxygen that's being delivered so for individuals that have similar fitness levels so they have similar vo2 max 
their VO2 max becomes a poor predictor of performance. So if you and I had the same VO2 max, something else, another determinant of performance may predict whether who who's better. So um, the athletes with the better exercise economy or efficiency will be more successful during competitions because even though they've got a similar VO2 max, the person with the better exercise economy will be better able to use the oxygen that they've consumed. So that means that they're able to use less oxygen whilst exercising at similar work rates. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is important because the more efficient the athlete will be, the, the better, the greater proportion of energy for their desired work rate. So small improvements in exercise economy through training could lead to large improvements in performance. Yeah. Okay. So in that sense, then, is there ways that we could help train that better? Yeah, yeah. There are definitely loads of training models that um, can help improve exercise economy, um, training at different different um, points in your in your lactate or different percentages of your VO two max. So they say the um, something to do with this is going on to a completely different sport. So running, if you they say that doing running at high intensity exercise is actually not uh, like constantly is not actually that beneficial for you. You need to be exercising at a certain percentage of your lactate lactate threshold. So you should be running just below your critical power to then make it make you efficient. So if you, if you increase your critical power, then you'll be more efficient at using the oxygen. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah so, if you're training at a certain level, you then improve that level even more. And then you train at that level and then you improve that level even more, yeah. which is making you more efficient at using your oxygen because you're obviously increasing each step. So um, yeah, this is testing your, uh, probably testing your swimming a bit more. How could we try, what training models within the pool could we do to help do that? Off the top of my head, I'm not 100% sure. Um, that would be something that uh, the physiologist or myself after training, uh, after the test, we'll, we'll have to discuss with the coach and the athlete. And um, like I said earlier, it's all individualized. So it's yeah. what the athlete, what the athlete can do um, and what sort of sessions you can do in the pool to make it work. But it's definitely... There's definitely loads of loads of programs out there that, that allow you to increase your uh, economy and efficiency. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's that's a valid point because, of course, swimming is all about well, economy and efficiency, really, isn't it? Like that's the main thing. You can muscle your way through something, but that doesn't mean you're going to be any better than yeah. if you're more. Definitely, when uh, when swimming, you're holding your breath quite a lot, so you're only taking in certain amounts of oxygen at certain times so the the better the person the swimmer can use their oxygen the better really yeah because you're not actually getting much of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well no that's a, that's a valid point i think this kind of like really nicely segues into um the like our next question which is the physio physiology of swimming how does that differ from other sports like running and stuff like so we did brush on running a little bit there yeah so Swimming is such a unique sport um, because it's within 
a unique environment and this leads to so many different physiological responses to other sports so uh, firstly a swimmer's body is immersed in water obviously that's what makes them a swimmer um, and then this increases the hydrostatic pressure around the body so when the inspiratory muscles which are the muscles that surround your lungs um, including your lungs you've got your abs and your back muscles um, and your rib cage that the hydrostatic pressure when the inspiratory muscles sorry are relaxed this hydrostatic pressure whilst being immersed pushes the chest wall inwards um, and this increased pressure of pushing the incre- the chest wall inwards creates causes the inspiratory muscles to apply increased pressure back so oh, yeah. you've got one pressure in and then the inspiratory muscles are trying to push it back and then so that means that there's an increased there's increased work of the inspiratory muscles to try and rectify the deep the deformation of the chest wall so even though the swimmer is breathing hard anyway and the the lungs and the inspiratory muscles are working hard the pressure of the chest wall on it is also increasing the work that they're doing because they're trying to come back okay at that so there's like one pressure one way and one pressure the other which means that the, the the lungs are working harder than they need to because they're trying to come back at the pressure of the chest wall um on top of that uh <clears throat> excessive demand is placed on the inspiratory muscles due to the rapid inspiratory um the breathing that swimmers do so this requires the inspiratory muscles to to shorten at very high speeds so it, you because you're only breathing in every so often and it's very quick because obviously your head is out head is in head is out head is in you're just the inspiratory muscles are just breathing so quickly they're not getting the chance to to take in the big breath slowly they're just literally just taking in what they can in that short period of time um but one positive about the environment is the the positions of the supinal horizontal position that they're adopted by swimmers so this position actually reduces the postural characteristics of the rib cage and the abdominal muscles. So because they're lying down, the, the postural characteristics of sit standing is reduced. Um, and this allows the diaphragm and the surrounding muscles to function more efficiently during inspiration. Um, however, the, uh, there is a flaw to this where the position of being horizontal shifts the blood volume from the lower extremities so the legs um into the chest cavity which results areas that might otherwise be occupied with air to be filled with blood and as a result increasing the work of breathing so you've gone from stand being um stood upright and all the blood is down on the legs and as soon as you lie down all that blood from the legs is going straight to the chest cavity yeah, actually yeah. it's normally normally filled with air so it's uh then making it harder for the lungs to breathe because a lot of the stuff that's filled with air is now filled with blood yeah I, i've never thought of that to be fair that's that's a very valid point then that that assume would then make as you said breathing difficult but would that make um the travel of oxygen to certain areas of our body a lot less reduced as well uh I don't 100% know, but that would make sense. Yeah, 
that would definitely make sense um maybe something for me or you to have a have a read about um <laughs> but yeah that would definitely make sense and also probably less oxygen being able to be carried carried around yeah because there's more blood although it could it you could see it in a sense of there's more blood to carry the oxygen around yeah because if it's all pulled in a certain area then you're gonna have a higher quantity of red blood cells blood. in that area yeah 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 i don't know we'll have some, <laughs> something to uh Something to have a look at. Yeah, you have to go back to your your, your labs and go and have a test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's a very um, interesting point. Um, talking about um, the positioning of our body, because I think one of I'm just racking my head now. I think it is one of the only sports that is um, horizontal rather than us standing upright or something like that. I just I can't think of any other ones that other than like Bob's um, what yeah. skeleton? Yeah, skeleton. Yeah. I can't think of any others, which I've never really thought about, to be honest. So there's a food for the thought of the day. Swimming is yeah. a few sports we are horizontal. Um, but yeah, and as you said, it's a very much a, um, a sport with a reduced amount of oxygen. So as swimmers ourselves um, and as coaches listening into this, we need to be looking at how we can improve our oxygen intake in our swimmers and stuff like that in order to make them yeah. better, for sure. I know that a lot of um, so a lot of the underwater stuff that you do, the breath holding and stuff, that's sort of a hypoxic kind of training because obviously you're doing exercise with little oxygen. Mm. So in that sense, the underwater training that we do, even though it's a horrible training set that we get given and every time we see it, we're like, oh, not something I want to be doing. It's actually quite beneficial for training our lungs to and our body to do exercise with with less oxygen yeah um and that's something that um because i i remember reading somewhere in our chat some of my coaches in like um if we're um in a very unfortunate environment where we don't have hours and hours of pool time training to swim doing your aerobic as a mixture of hypoxic work as well um can kind of like it's kind of like <laughs> I can't say this, but it's like a cheap for your fitness, if you know what I mean. You can speed up your fitness intake a little bit quicker because you're training at a sort of like a less uh, or less than favourable environment to drive it forward. Now, you're probably going to tell me here that's a complete lie, but... <laughs> no, no, not at all. It makes sense. Um, it, you've got some people... Some people in... So um, people that live in high altitude places that are used to not having much oxygen will probably be quite good at exercising down when there's loads of oxygen so just because they're used to not having it not because they've trained up there or even that they're athletes up there they've just so used to not having much so actually if they get into training then down in in sea level then actually then yeah they'll be really good at using it. So it, going back to what you were saying, that hypoxic training for a swimmer, even though you've not got much training hours, could actually be quite beneficial because you're training your body not to use that oxygen as much quite yeah. quickly. You're sort of forcing it <laughs> to yeah. 
don't don't not to, to not use the oxygen that you're giving it no i, so, I think like, i mean of course um i have to put my little disclaimer in here of course hypoxic training be careful with it don't kill yourself it's not it's not recommended <laughs> like um but it's like i think it's a really interesting thought because i know i chat to one of the coaches um at Portsmouth North Sea, um adam parfit who um in pre-season was doing a, a lot of hypoxic work um during the aerobic phase we're not saying here like holding your breath for 200 meters or something it's sort of like telling saying your stroke counts breathing every five instead of every two or three if you know what i mean and like increasing that time um without your breath um over longer periods of over longer distances so like 200s 400s of um short rest intervals but then are you breathing every five kind of like you you are decreasing that oxygen intake and bits like that so it's something, something interesting to look at um in that sense yeah definitely breathing every training your body to breathe every five and then possibly increasing it every seven every whatever is teaching your muscles to to not use all your oxygen that you've you, you've taken in so quick it's yeah teaching your muscles to to just hold back on using it all <laughs> no I, I think that's a it's, it's a really interesting point I know, I know um we do some some uh, kind of like hypoxic sets and if it's a straight 50 I can do that no breath whatsoever it, that's all right yeah. but then if we start saying okay like my coach puts up 200 on the board first 50 breathing every three second every five seven nine like it keeps going up like that when I get to that last 50 I'm done like yeah <laughs> I can barely even like I have to I'm breathing every two it's like oh the whole the wheels fall off it's all gone and then down. your coach makes you do it again yeah and because like, you've not done it properly <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like um of course that shows a weakness in my um my training and my aerobic. in that sense yeah. so it's definitely something that I need to look at but um yeah that's it's an interesting point in that sense the way you say teaching your body to learn to use the oxygen better and bits like that yeah definitely well no i think it's great and also um like quick little bit because we just talk about this you you um because physiology and bits like that we don't get much of that in swimming you usually have to go and talk to the universities and bits like that but um you at cardinal you're looking at doing actually going in and helping swimming teams with this kind of help like that, that yeah that's the pattern, isn't it yeah so that would be the ideal future direction of um, approaching coaches or or even individual swimmers or teams coming to approach Cardinal um, to to get some physiology testing done. Um, it's it's very unique for um, they're not even amateur swimmers, just swimmers that aren't up there with with like the international training facilities just swimmers that maybe even just national swimmers that are part of a small club or anyone that wants to see their physiological profile and their athlete profile to come and have some physiology testing done um look at their vo2 max look at their lactates um set training programs for them uh with their training zones and heart rate training zones and go to their coaches and talk to their coaches and say okay this is this individual's athlete profile what this is where they are in terms of their fitness this this is this and then they can set training programs specific to them um so that would be the ideal future direction for for cardinal um so 
hopefully that will start setting up soon. Um, we can start approaching train uh, coaches and clubs and swimmers. So let's see where that goes. But that's exciting, exciting stuff for both for for me um, and for for the coaches and swimmers as well that they can have access to that facility. Yeah, for sure. If you've got some social media and stuff you can plug, like so, if people want to go and have a look and bits like that. I did have a look at the website. The um, website what www.cardinalperformanceswimming.com, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, if you go on to the website that Clive just said, Cardinal Performance Swimming, it'll have information on there. So there's a nutritionist and everyone on there as well. So if you're interested in nutrition or physiology or anything like that, you go onto there and um, have a read. There's little snippets of everything that's on there um, to do with. So I had a, I have a little snippets of lactate threshold, little snippets of um, Ex- exercise economy and efficiency and vo2 max so if you have a look on there have a bit of a read um and then if you're interested just uh give the email address a little a little hit up and um you'll be able to contact you of what we can do so yeah it's um hopefully it'll start start getting there and picking it up and seeing people so uh no for sure i think it's a really interesting move really interesting move for sure well thank you so much Amy, for coming on it's been really good and really interesting chat um i know i'm definitely going to go and be doing some more reading and looking into that but oh um, that book i was going to recommend oh, that book, book to you yes the book yes give me two seconds it's only behind me <laughs> so the book is called faster higher stronger um by mark mccluskey um, it's really good. There's chapters on um, eating, um, learning how to be the best. You've got things on genetics, uh, the fundamentals of sport, um, how to learning how to be the best. It's a what tired means to you. There's a bit on recovery, so it's actually it's really interesting. It gives you examples of different people in the field and. Um, yeah I'm, I'm just really enjoying it so it's it's definitely worth a read it's only a little book but it's got all the information you need and it's in a lot of it's written in layman's terms so anyone can read it and understand it so no i'll definitely be having to read it that I, I, I do like a good book <laughs> it's a really good read really easy read oh perfect then. bedtime reading then yeah definitely that's when i read it before bed <laughs> in between my busy schedule of work adult life <laughs> <laughs> well as a, once again thank you so much for coming on it's been really good um remember anyone who wants to um follow up in these conversations you can join the love swimming facebook group um where we have these kind of conversations daily posting on there about swimming and science and swimming and bits like that so yeah really get on to that um also yeah i'll be here next week with another guest and bits like that. if anyone really wants to come on the podcast as well just drop me a line on the um group um say you're interested and we can have a chat and we may be able to get you on this to come and have a conversation about swimming and science and swimming and learn to swim and all the sociology stuff and bits like that as well so yeah um do hit me up and yeah once again Amy, thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me it's been a pleasure yeah.